Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for a day to worship you. A day to gather together as the saints. A day to gather together as the family, as the household that you've drawn all of us into. We thank you for the joy of our children. It's fun to watch them dance and sing and just enjoy their time before you. We ask, Lord God, that uh, today, as we're worshiping, we might have that same joy just well up in us and we just can't hold it back. Lord God, we come before you to sing your praises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, you can see the title. Yeah. You know, we all give testimonies. We tell others what we like. You do that. You tell them you like Apple, or you like IBM, Ford or Chevy, salad or cheesecake. I'm the cheesecake guy. You eat dessert first. You know, and, and, and when you say that, you know, that, that's giving you a testimony. When you say what you believe, that bacon is an essential food group, you know, that's, that's a testimony. When you tell others what you see or what you hear, that too is a testimony. When you say what you think or what you know, that's your testimony, what's going on inside your head. Some of those testimonies ought to be kept quiet. <laughs> but only you, only you can give that testimony. And it can't be refuted. Why not? Because it's what you think. It's what you believe. It's what you know. Who's going to say, well, no, you don't really know that. Well, no, you don't really believe that. I mean, they can challenge what you believe, but they, they can't refute it. That's your testimony. Now, the examples I just gave may seem a bit frivolous. Nah. But when you step into a court of law, when you step into a court of law and you raise your right hand and you vow to God Almighty to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that's serious business, isn't it? Someone's life or liberty may be at stake based in part on what you say or what you don't say. So you want to be accurate when you take that witness stand, don't you? When you present the gospel to an unbeliever, you're giving your testimony of what you believe about Jesus Christ and what God's Word says about Him. And that, too, absolutely is serious business. Their eternal soul is at stake. Don't freak out. Their salvation isn't in your hands. That's in God's hands, not yours. Your responsibility is to testify to the truth of God as it's revealed in the Bible. That's your job. That's all you're doing. And if you simply testify to what you believe and to what the Bible says, guess what? That can't be refuted. But be accurate. Let the Bible speak for itself. Explain it, yes, yes, but don't go interpreting it. And what that means is, and if you take this and you add this to that and the other and it, because now you've just entered into an argument. Now it's an opinion. So just explain it. Don't interpret it. Say, this is what the Bible says. How do you read it? That's a wonderful way to present the gospel, isn't it? Look, it, it, that's what it says. Here, I'm opening it to it. Read it for yourself. I'm not going to read it to you. You read it. And when you say, how do you read it? You'll never guess, but that's what Jesus used to do. <laughs> He'd have people come to him and ask him these awkward questions, you know. And he says, well, how do you read it? How do you read it? The Bible has lots of testimonies, doesn't it? Some are the testimonies of people. Others are the testimonies of God. 
How do you know which ones those are? Thus saith the Lord. And sometimes we have people that go, thus saith the Lord, and it's not what the Lord said. So, you know, but you want to make sure that you are being accurate as to what the Bible says, what the Lord did in fact say. Now, the entire book of John is his testimony about the things that he personally saw and that he personally heard. His testimony also contains the testimonies of others. But that doesn't make it hearsay. My first year in law school, they had to explain to me when I took criminal law, you know, what the difference is between hearsay and other stuff. Just because you heard somebody say it, it doesn't mean that what you heard was hearsay. You are testifying that you actually heard them say that. That's it. That's what you're testifying. Whether it's true or whether it's not true, you say, that's what they said. I heard them say it. Not hearsay. And John is saying that. He says he heard them say these things. And that's a valid testimony in any court of law. It's credible evidence, isn't it? As long as the witness is credible. As long as the witness is credible. Now, I believe what John said. I believe what he wrote in his book. And yet, I believe him by God's enabling grace. Because there was a time when I did not have God's enabling grace, and I thought it was all nonsense. I thought it was all lies. I thought it was all fiction. I thought it was all mythology. So when I say that I believe what John said, and that's by God's grace, I'm testifying to that, that that's how it works. And God sanctifies us by his word as well. He not only reveals it to us, but he also sanctifies us by it. That's something he does to us. He does that to make us a holy people. Why? Well, it's not to make us worthy of his salvation. Nuh-uh. No. It's to make us credible witnesses of his truth. He does that to make us credible witnesses of his truth. That's why we want to be a, a holy people. That's why we're called the saints. God's holy people. Therefore, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. In chapter 1, John recorded the testimonies of God and of John the Baptist and of the apostles. Today, we're going to do chapter 18. In chapter 18, John's going to give us the testimony of Jesus Christ himself as John heard it. Eyewitness testimony. He's attesting to it, and he's asking us to believe it. Now in chapter 21, at the close of this book, spoiler alert, at the close of the book, John affirms what he wrote. And there are witnesses who affirm that John wrote it, and also that they believe what he wrote. So listen, this is John 21, 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. This is John writing this. And who has written these things. And then comes something else. And we know that his testimony is true. Those are corroborating witnesses. When you sign a contract, when you sign a mortgage, it may need to be witnessed by a notary. Any of you gone through that? You go to a notary and they got that cute little stamp. They used to have this thing, it's a press, you know, and you put the paper in there, you know, and it makes this permanent indent. They don't do that anymore, you got a rubber thing. I like the old way. Anyway, the notary is testifying to the fact that you're the one who signed the paper. And he's checked your ID proving that you are who you claim to be. John serves as a notary for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And John's disciples serve as notaries for his own testimony. We know that his testimony is true. We saw these things. We heard these things. We heard John testify to these things all our lives, and we're here to testify to that. 
Today we're going to hear the testimony of Jesus Christ. As John recorded it, Jesus' testimony, if you didn't know, is necessary. Jesus' testimony is necessary testimony. Why? Because it's unique. Because it's exclusive. Jesus said, no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what His attributes are, who are you going to go to? The only one who knows. And so the testimony of Jesus Christ is necessary, essential, unavoidable. Jesus is about to be arrested. He's going to be cross-examined by several judges. He'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God. <laughs> and being God incarnate, he cannot lie, right? Isn't that what it says in Titus 1-2? John is an eyewitness. He provides us with evidence. That's what the book of John is. John is providing us with evidence. When we present the gospel, we testify to what we believe, yes, but we also give evidence. So it's not blind belief, is it? We don't have a blind faith. We have a faith based in truth, based in history, based on evidence. We're witnesses, but we're also jurors. We're witnesses, but we're also jurors. We've weighed the evidence that we've seen and we've heard. And we render a judgment about it. That's what we do when we give a gospel testimony. We render a judgment. And this is what I believe, and here's why. This sermon is pretty straightforward. What we'll see is that Jesus has a testimony. And John has a testimony. And we believers have a testimony. Present tense, ongoing. You have some of John's testimonies in a handout, on a handout, in your bulletin. So reach in there, pull it out, wave it in the air, show me that you see that it's there. Good job. I encourage you to put that in your Bible. It may come in handy when you need evidence for the testimony you give to others about who Jesus is and what he did to save you. That's not all of them. I'm going to throw in some extra ones this morning. Okay, but all of those are useful ones. On the back of that handout, you'll see all the I am's. I am this, I am that, I am him, I am that. Fascinating. So, let's read the passage. John 18, 1. I'm going to do what Kurt does sometimes. <laughs> when Jesus had spoken these words, and let's stop there. <laughs> <laughs> that is, when he had said the words of his prayer for us, that's at the end of chapter 17 that we did last week. Jesus said to the Father, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I may be in them. Those are the words. That's John 17, 26. Okay, 18, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now that's the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 2. <clears throat> now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, who had left the dinner party earlier to betray Jesus, having procured a, a band of soldiers and some officers with the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. <laughs> what do they think Jesus was going to do? What do they think the disciples were going to do? Weapons. 
Verse 4, and then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, knowing all that would happen. And he's not surprised by any of this. He's not shocked by any of this. He's expecting all of this. So Jesus came forward and said to them, so uh, who are you looking for? Oh, excuse me, plural. Whom do you seek? Let's be fancy. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I'm he. <laughs> Literally, he said, I am. Which is how God described himself to Moses at the burning bush, isn't it? Jesus is testifying that he's the one they're seeking. But he's also testifying that he and the Father are one, as we've heard for the past few weeks. Verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You know, every time I read that, I imagine those Roman soldiers, when the tomb gets rolled, opened up, right, and the stone gets rolled away, and, you know, they all faint, you know, <laughs> and it's one of those occasions. They drew back, fell to the ground. So Jesus obviously startled them, didn't he? He actually said it, and he said it out loud for everybody to hear. He struck fear into them, I think. He didn't disappear as he'd done before, when his hour had not yet come. But that hour is now here, and he will not turn away from it. He's not going to try to avoid it. He told his disciples that it was for this very purpose that he came into the world. We went through that in John 12. Verse 7, so he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I'm he. So if you seek me, then let these other men go. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken in his prayer from John 17. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus has lost none of those that were given to him by God the Father for redemption on the cross. He never will. He will never let go of you. No one can pluck you out of his hand because no one can pluck him out of the Father's hand because the Father gave you into the hands of Christ for redemption. Verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, Peter, 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 drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Go, Pete. <laughs> the servant's name was Malchus. Peter is impetuous as usual. Act first, speak first, think later. Uh, tends to be my problem. <laughs> That's why I write these things down. You know, so I try not to go off script too much. I don't always succeed. Anyway, Peter's impetuous. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, Petey. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What's Jesus referring to? What's he saying? What's this reminder of? Jesus is referring to the cup of God's wrath that he would drink on our behalf, isn't he? To atone for our sin. That's why he's here. That's why he came. That's what he's going to do. And he's gently reminding Peter of that day that he refused to accept Jesus' impending death. That's when Jesus cried out, May it never be! Nah, you ain't going to the cross. I'll make sure you don't have to do that. Yeah, Peter, Peter, Peter. Jesus stared straight at Peter on that day when he said that, but it was Satan that he rebuked, and he rebuked him for tempting Peter. Get behind me, Satan. 
In that moment, Jesus stepped between Satan and Peter. Why? To save his sheep from the wolf's attack. Christ does that for you and for me day in and day out. He gets between Satan and us so that the outcome, that dastardly effect, will never take fruit. He has saved us completely forever. So here Jesus is doing that same thing again here in the garden as Peter once more succumbs to his flesh. Luke tells us that Jesus mercifully healed the servant's wound. That's in Luke twenty-two fifty-one. He restored Peter from his sin and Malchus from its effects, didn't he? This is a foretaste of the healing and the mercy that would soon come through the cross for all his sheep, for you and for me. Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. I <laughs> don't think they had to, but they bound him. They wanted to show their power. They wanted to show their strength. They wanted to show their superiority. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Annas had been high priest the, the previous year. It was Caiaphas who would advise the Jews that it would be excellent that one man should die for the people, like a sacrificial lamb, not knowing when he said that, that he was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was a testimony in Scripture, wasn't it? In fact, right here in the book of John, that was a testimony. Who said it? Whose testimony was that? John the Baptist. That's right. Meanwhile, the disciples had fled from the garden. It says that in Matthew 26, 56. But, but Peter and another followed Jesus to the courtyard where the Son of God would be tried by the sons of men. <laughs> Listen to the detail that John provides of what he saw and heard that night. Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. And so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and he brought Peter in. Now, it's not likely that John would have been known to the high priest, nor that the servant girl would have obeyed him by letting Peter in. Maybe it was someone on the council, part of the 70, part of the Sanhedrin, who wasn't openly known to follow Christ. Nicodemus came in the middle of the night, didn't he, so he wouldn't be seen. Joseph of Arimathea, who knew until it came time to bury Christ? But it's clear that John is also there, watching, listening. And now comes Peter's test of faith, his three denials, as foretold by Christ back in John 13, verse 17. <laughs> the servant girl at the door said to Peter, aren't you also one of this man's disciples? And Peter goes, I am not. <laughs> That's his first denial, his first testimony. And it's a false testimony. Verse 18. <clears throat> now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself by their fire. How's that for an image? How is that for an image? Peter is associating with them, identifying with them, warming himself at their fire. Now, to all appearances, if you were there in the courtyard, you'd say, he's one of them. 
He's one of them. Jesus is being interrogated inside. I've done that myself. I do that every Christmas when I worship the holiday with family, with friends. Hiding my identity as a Christian. Not wanting to cause a stir, not wanting to start an argument. Maybe you have too. And now we hear Jesus' own testimony. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, well, you know, I've spoken openly to the world. Cosmos. Everybody. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple. I've always done that. This isn't new. Where all the Jews came together. It's not like you people don't know who I am or what I've said. I've said nothing in secret. Why ask me? Why ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. In other words, call your witnesses. Ask for their testimony. I've given mine openly to the world already. Did you believe me? Many heard what I said. Will you believe them? Do you even want to hear the truth? Jesus is throwing accusations back at them, isn't he? Asking them to take a stand. Asking them to testify about their own beliefs. Listen to Jesus' caution in John 12. I'll put this up on the board for you. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Really? Interesting thing to say. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The word that I have spoken is going to be their judge. Did they believe it? Did they not believe it? They'll be judged accordingly. Oh my. John 18, 22. When Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck him with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Shame on you. Don't you know who you're talking to? Don't you realize how important this guy is? Have you no respect for him who accuses you? So, 23, Jesus answered him. Well, if what I said is wrong, well then bear witness about the wrong. Go ahead, say what it was that I said that wasn't true. I dare you. That is testified to it under oath. Here, don't bear false witness about me. That's a caution to every Christian, isn't it? Don't bear false witness about me. But if what I said is right, then why do you strike me? Why indeed? Why indeed? The preliminary hearing ends. Annas, who is Caiaphas' uh, father-in-law, has played his part. Why? Well, he wanted to have his say. He wanted to show his power and how mighty he was and to exalt himself in the eyes of the people. He had judged the Son of God as if he was superior to him. He revealed his bias against the evidence of many witnesses, discounting all of it. Verse 24, Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now that trial is not recorded here in John. It's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. What we want to take away from this is that the one who would come to set the captives free has himself been made a captive. It wasn't by mistake was not by mistake. 
He wasn't a victim. Jesus took our place willingly, and he did it out of love. The one who was without sin was being made a sin offering for us in that very moment. Back to Peter, who's still in the courtyard, verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, aren't you one of the disciples of his? And Peter denied it and said, I am not. Nuh-uh. That's his second denial, his second false testimony. But we do that too, don't we? Think of all the times when you knew what you ought to say or do, and yet something compelled you to do the opposite. Satan laid a snare for you in that moment. You saw it right there in front of you, and you stepped into it anyway. <laughs> I do that all the time. I do that all the time. Well, that's Peter. That was Paul's lament in Romans 7. Paul said, look, what I don't want to do, you'll never guess, that's what I do anyway. And what I want to do, well, that's what I don't do. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a promise for you. Take that one to the bank. Jesus won't abandon Peter in his moment of weakness. Jesus had made Peter a promise. This is from Luke 22. Peter made this, uh, Jesus made this promise to Peter. He said, look, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Peter, <laughs> but I've prayed for you. Jesus prayed for Peter. Jesus prays for you and me. I've prayed for you. What did you pray? That your faith might not fail. And when, not if, you have turned back to me, strengthen your brothers. What is that? That's called a promise. It's a testimony. Even in falling, Peter will be lifted up with Christ on the cross as every one of us has been. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, whoops, <laughs> asked this. He said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster, a rooster crowed. That's the mic drop moment. Bam. Strike three. Strike three. Yes, but hope remains. <laughs> yes, but hope remains. God has made provision in Christ for that very moment. Every one of us has those moments. And Christ has paid for every one of them. Delivered us from every one of us. From every one of them. Saved every one of us. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the Roman governor's headquarters. It's early morning. How do we know? The, the, cro the, the cock just crowed. The, <laughs> the rooster has made it known. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters. Why? So they wouldn't be defiled and could still eat the Passover. Even then, it was all about the food. Verse 29. So Pilate, the governor, went outside to them and said, what accusation to bring against this man? Verse 30, they answered him, well, <laughs> you know, if this man weren't doing evil, you know, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. You know, take, a, take our word for it. They're not going to make a charge against Jesus openly because they have no evidence. In fact, all of the eyewitness testimony instead goes against them. 
And so they're deliberately vague, saying, in effect, you know, trust us. We say he's guilty of a crime punishable by death. Don't ask too many questions, Pilate. We judged him, but we want you to punish him. Why? So our hands remain clean. But Pilate's no dummy. He sees what they're up to. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Why are you bothering me with this? Take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. Why are you bringing him to me? How is this my problem? The Jews said to him, Well, it's not lawful for us under Roman law to put anyone to death, and we'd like this guy dead tomorrow. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Crucifixion was a uniquely Roman way of executing. But this also showed that they were more willing to abide by the laws of Rome in this moment for their purposes, for their ends, for their intrigues, for their own personal gain, more willing to abide by the laws of Rome than by the laws of God. Verse 33, and so Pilate entered his headquarters again. He summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? <laughs> this is interesting. No one has actually leveled that charge against Jesus of being the king of the Jews. The Jews didn't mention it. Now it comes up later when he wants to put that little sign on the, on the cross. But up till this point, it, it, it hasn't shown up. It hasn't come up before. All four Gospels have Pilate asking this question, and yet not one of them has the basis for asking it. <laughs> Where do you hear that from? What's the rumor going around? On Palm Sunday, at Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, the crowds hailed Jesus as the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But no one, not one, cried out, Hail, King of the Jews. Everyone knows it but no one's going to publicly admit it. We celebrate Christmas next week. Curiously, the only place that King of the Jews, quote-unquote, is mentioned prior to Jesus' trial is in Matthew 2.2, where three wise men arrive on the doorstep from the east. And they ask Herod, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? All those Christmas songs we were singing this morning. Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. That's why we're here today. That's why we're here today. We've come to worship him. That was a question, but it was also their testimony. They checked out the evidence and they came with a testimony knowing that the king of the Jews had been born. Where is he? That's a testimony. Again, everyone knows who Jesus is, but no one is going to testify to it under oath. <laughs> How human. How like all of us. Verse 34, Jesus answered Pilate. He actually asked him a question. He says, um, do you say this? Are you the one asking the question? Or is this something of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Is it hearsay? Is it just hearsay? Is this your admission of who I am, or is it only hearsay? When we present the gospel, we ask, who do you say Jesus is? Right? That's the question on the table. That's why we present the gospel. To help somebody, number one, ask the question, but number two, answer the question. Who do you say Jesus is? 
And so we present the evidence and our own testimony, and then we ask them if they believe it. That's what Jesus is doing here. <laughs> and guess who he's asking? Pilate, the judge. Who do you say that I am? Am I a liar? A lunatic? Or am I, in fact, your Lord? <laughs> I think Pilate must have stammered a bit or laughed, one or the other. Verse 36, Pilate answered, what, 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 am I a Jew? Whether Jesus is king of the Jews, says Pilate, is a question for Jews to answer, not Gentiles, and certainly not him. He says to Jesus, you know, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. So, fess up. What have you done? He's saying, I'm your judge, Jesus. <laughs> what arrogance. What temerity. Confess to me, what have you done? What have you done that's worthy of death under the laws of men? Little does Pilate know that the day is coming. That day is surely coming when all the graves are going to be opened and every human being, living or dead, will be judged by Jesus Christ who now stands before him. <laughs> uh, they're going to be compelled to testify, which is what Pilate thinks he's doing to Jesus. Paul says that on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess to God that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul will admit that Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. That's on judgment day. But as we saw earlier, it's the word this is, Right? Jesus saying you'll be judged by the words. It's the words that we speak while we're still alive, the answer that we give while we're still breathing that we'll be judged by on that day. In other words, if you're going to give an answer, now's the time to give it. And Pilate is being compelled to testify in this moment. He doesn't have a clue. <laughs> like so many, he just doesn't have a clue. Jerusalem has always been a tinderbox, and Pilate is not about to light the match. Pilate thinks this debate is about who Jesus is and why he came and what he's done. He thinks it's all very interesting, but it's irrelevant. He thinks they don't concern him. And he doesn't need to answer them for himself. As the French like to say, au contraire. How many people do you know that have that same attitude? Maybe some are sitting here this morning. They think there's still time. Let me fill my barns first. Let me eat, drink, and be merry, for if I die tomorrow, well, you know, it doesn't matter anyway. It all ends at death. We Christians know it doesn't. We Christians know it does not end at death. There's an eternity to come. Where will we spend it? In heaven or in hell? Christians, you and I, have a testimony to give to force this question about who Jesus is and to provoke an answer. Jesus is doing that with Pilate. Pilate sits here. He's aloof. He's, if anything, he's peeved at being forced into the situation. His wife told him, don't get involved. <laughs> but Pilate can't escape his duty. God has ordained it. And so Pilate will play his role just as Judas played his. 
Jesus knows Pilate's dilemma. He has compassion on him, I think. He takes the time here, despite the circumstances, to reveal who he truly is. Jesus describes for him two kingdoms, two cities. One is of this world and the other is in the heavenlies. Jesus testifies to Pilate that he is indeed a king and that he indeed has a kingdom. Listen closely. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. The world hasn't given me this kingdom. It doesn't come from the hands of men, and it's not a worldly kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. It's been my kingdom from eternity past, and it will be my end to eternity future. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So, uh, you are a king? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I think it's funny. I think this poor slob is there, and he's got, he's got the king of the universe sitting in front of him, and he's asking dumb questions. <laughs> so, uh, you are a king? And Jesus answered, well, you say that I'm a king. The problem is you think I'm an earthly king. But that would be your testimony, not mine. Pilate has no idea what kind of king Jesus truly is. He looks at Jesus' humble attire, his apparent powerlessness to escape, and the fact that he's on trial for his life in front of this ordinary low-level government official like himself. <laughs> what kind of king is that? Father probably had a quizzical look on his face, seeing the irony of it all. <laughs> Just he looks at the, he looks outside, he looks at Jesus, you know, shakes his head and says, This can't be happening. <laughs> uh, Jesus affirms both his authority and his mission. Doesn't skip a beat. He's going to affirm both his authority and his mission. Jesus explains that he's no victim of circumstances. In fact, verse 37, he's saying this to Pilate. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's a challenge, isn't it? The gauntlet has just been dropped. Jesus is calling Pilate, like a judge calling a witness to the stand. What did you see? What did you hear? What do you believe? Jesus came from heaven to earth to give his testimony to the truth of God and of the grace of God and of the love of God. All of that's part of his testimony. He testified to his disciples saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's a testimony. Peter testified, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Truth itself, embodied in Christ, stands before Pilate, and yet Pilate cannot see, he cannot hear, he cannot believe. Remember the thing about God's enabling grace? He's a natural man, not a spiritual man. It's all foolishness to him. 
1 Corinthians 2.14. Verse 38, Pilate cynically asked Jesus, <laughs> what is truth? Seriously, what, what is truth? I mean, I've lived long enough, you know, and seen enough of this idiocy going on, you know, both by the folks above me and the folks below me. You know, what is truth? He's not expecting an answer. This is one of those rhetorical questions because he hasn't got a clue. So after he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. That's his judgment. I find no guilt in this man. He's done nothing deserving of death. That's Pilate's testimony about this man, Jesus Christ. In doing this, Pilate was being a just judge. In reaching this conclusion, he was being a just judge. Unlike the judges of Israel, who have brought the accusation against Christ. But Pilate is also a man of his times, isn't he? Finds himself between a rock and a hard place. He offers an alternative, a compromise, so that Jesus might live. He appeals to the Jews to take advantage of their own custom and to extend mercy to Jesus. Verse 39. But you, you Jews, have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, and it's Passover week. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? <laughs> and there it is. There's the title. Now, no one is objecting to the title. Not really. What they object to is the man, Jesus Christ. They object to the truth of God that he embodies. That's what they object to. And by doing so, they raise their fists to God. Verse 40. Last verse. They cried out again. They yelled out, not this man, -uh, not Jesus, but Barabbas. <laughs> and John finishes with a little one-liner. Now Barabbas was a robber. <laughs> he came to steal. Barabbas was a notorious man. Luke tells us that he was thrown into prison for murder and for a certain rebellion made in the city, an insurrection. <laughs> that didn't used to be a well-known word, you know, until the past year or two. That's what they accused Jesus of, of insurrection. How so? By claiming to be a king. Luke 23, 19. Barabbas was the exact opposite of Jesus. Jesus came to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. That we read in Matthew? Choosing Barabbas over Jesus is an admission of what the Jews believed. That choice itself is a statement on their part of what they believe and who they do not believe. They would be judged by their own words and by their choice. In testifying against Christ, they testified against themselves. So, application. What are we to do with all this? It's a lot of testimony, isn't it? <laughs> I think I counted them up and there were like 75 mentions of testimony or testify. Beating a dead horse. But it's important that we understand what's going on here. That's a lot of testimony. But there were a lot of people on trial besides Jesus. So a lot of witnesses had to be called to take the stand. In fact, Jesus' trial became, in effect, 
their trial. Jesus' trial became, in effect, their trial. Peter was on trial. Annas and Caiaphas were on trial. The Jewish officials were on trial. Pilate was on trial. The crowd was on trial, along with the rest of mankind. And today, today, you are being called to take the stand. Every Christian today is being called to take the stand and to testify. As I said at the beginning, this sermon is pretty straightforward. Jesus testifies, John testifies, and you testify. Who do you say Jesus is? What testimony will you give? It's serious business. Be truthful. Be accurate. Tell others who Jesus Christ is and what he has done to set the captives free, to set you free. But please, 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 remember to convey to your listeners the joy, the joy of his salvation and the hope that you have in Christ. This is good news. That's why it's the gospel. It's good news. Use that handout of John's Extraordinary Testimonies. I put that title on top. Do that when you present the gospel, but notice that none of the verses that are on that paper contains the word grace. Huh. That's interesting, because there's a gob of verses. And Billy has laid it out over two pages. You know, verse after verse after verse after verse. And, and grace is nowhere to be seen. And yet the gospel is incomplete without grace without that enabling grace. Grace is what distinguishes true Christianity from all other religions. John mentions grace only three times in his book. All of them are in chapter 1. Huh. They're at the beginning of his testimony because that's where the gospel begins, in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So be sure to include John 1.17. You can write that down on your sheet of paper. John 1.17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah. And when you're presenting the gospel, explain it like this. In all of the religions, you're saved by works. By how well you conform to the moral law, by how good you are. And you hope that on balance, you know, you're more good than bad. <laughs> There's every other Christian, every other religion except Christianity. In Christianity, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Bill, every time you preach, you say that. Yes, I, it's worth remembering. Good works follow grace. Good works follow grace. They follow salvation. They don't obtain it for you. That's what makes the distinction between Christianity and every other religion. And yet good works are important. They evidence your faith and make you a credible witness. If the worship team would come up. As Kurt laid out for us last week, you have a mission given to you by God. To glorify the Lord Jesus by making God the Father and Jesus the Messiah known to the world. Don't do that by works alone, but also by testifying to what you believe. You are in this world for the very purpose of testifying. That's why you're here. You shall be my witnesses. 
Is that what Jesus said? You shall be my witnesses. Be a credible witness. Make known to others the words of God as they are recorded in Holy Scripture. They're God's testimony. Let his words speak for themselves. That's what Jesus did. So imitate Christ in word and deed. That the Father may be glorified through Christ. That you may be glorified in him on that day. Let's pray. Lord God, make us faithful witnesses, credible witnesses. Willing to sacrifice all that we might tell the truth which you gave to us in your word, through Jesus Christ our Lord, that in seeing him, we have seen you. May we testify to the world. That's what we believe. Amen.